You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hitachi Rail. Society is changing, and so is the way we think about mobility. Cities across America have become epicenters for change and transformation, leveraging new technologies and big ideas to adapt to a surge of population growth, demographic shifts, and economic pressures. On July 10th, the Washington Post brought together top innovators, key government officials, cutting-edge urban planners, and business leaders to discuss advancements that are poised to have a profound effect on urban areas and the people who live in them. From high-speed rail to self-driving vehicles, the mobility pioneers and business visionaries featured in this segment will examine how new kinds of transportation are transforming urban environments. Let's listen. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm Kat Zakreski, and I'm the author of the Technology 202 newsletter here at The Washington Post, um, where I write about tech policy. And I'm delighted to welcome my guests um, today for a look at the mobility challenges and opportunities for cities. And um, so first with us, we have Stephen Taylor. Um, He's the Mid-Atlantic Director of Lyft, and he's responsible for all lines of business for Lyft in D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. Also with us is Ian Rainey, Senior Vice President of the Northeast Maglev, a company formed to create innovative high-speed rail solutions across the Northeast Corridor. And so right now, um, the district's Mount Vernon Square area is in the running to become the home of a high-speed train um, that his company is working on. And next to me is Timothy Bean. He's the CEO of Fordham Technologies, a company that's mapping the skies for intruder drones. And as drone, de- as drone deliveries and air taxis become more of a reality in the US, he's going to tell us a little bit about what we can expect in, in that future. And so, Tim, since you're sitting next to me, why don't we start with you? And maybe can you just tell us a little bit about Fordham Technologies and what exactly the company's mission is? Yeah, Fordham uh, was founded, well, we started nine years ago. We incorporated three years ago. And um, the premise is that for you young people in the room, Uh, One of the largest markets of your lifetime is going to be what's called urban air mobility. Some estimated at over $3 trillion. And so think of the Jetsons. Think of air taxis. There's some 20 companies that are building these air taxis now. Amazon's going to let you fly in some of them this summer at over 20 cities. So it's happening. It's happening now. And Fordham, in this world where the airspace gets more crowded with drones and air taxis. How do you stay safe and how do you stay secure? Well, that's why we've been founded and funded. Boeing is a major investor in our company along with another, a lot of other Silicon Valley companies. And so we're building this infrastructure now to map the skies. One of the products we're famous for, I think there's a video here to show you now, is what we call the Fordham Drone Hunter. And it's a lot of fun. So I'm told it's about the queue and show right now. And I'll describe what's happening. Is it showing? Showing right now. Great. So you have drones flying around your city doing all sorts of wonderful things, right? Saving the world, protecting our police and fire departments, delivering you know, life-saving services. But some of those may be rogue. Director Ray of the FBI talked about that there was a, there'd be a drone attack in the United States and imminently he testified that before Congress. And so how do you keep your cities having these services and keeping your cities smart but also making sure that they're secure. And so this Drone Hunter product can fly like with a radar. It's like a radar-guided missile, but it's a radar-guided drone. 
and it tracks through an urban environment. It can pursue drones to, to shoo them away, or it can capture them with a net and tow them away safely. And there's a lot of technical reasons why um, this is an accepted approach versus other technical reasons, and <clears throat> we'll get into those maybe if there's time. And so on that point, I mean, some members of our audience might be familiar with some of the incidents that have happened at airports, particularly at Gatwick Airport has been in the news. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what it said about the future of um, safety of the skies? Yeah, sure. Um, Gatwick Airport, large airport, um, they lost over $100 million, um, 190,000 passengers stranded for three days. Can you imagine? The airport concession people made a lot of money, but that's about all the good that came out of it. And um, it's a real problem because it's not so much the, um, um, the drone getting in the engine, because planes can fly on one engine, but it's going through the, sh the windshield of the airplane and affecting the pilot and the plane. It's a, it's a real threat. And so they shut down the airport. And uh, one of the challenges they had is, historically, three or four years ago, you'd put up an RF antenna to listen to the drone for the RF. And if the drone flew over and the antenna detected that there was a drone, you would press a button to, to, to jam it. Uh, well, that, that's not sufficient anymore. <clears throat> What's happening is drones are flying on waypoints. So with an iPad, you just say, drone, fly from point A to B to C. And this is why the people at Gatwick probably could not catch the drone, is because it was programmed and all kinds of problems. It was never caught. And it, it went right over that antenna because it was just listening to GPS. It, it, there was nothing to detect, nothing to jam. And so this is why a lot of these sites now uh, across the United States and these smart cities are moving to you know, small radar systems to digitize the environment, digitize the sky to know what's happening um, in their airspace, mapping their airspace. And so, Ian, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your company now that we've kind of heard about what's the future of transportation in the skies. You're working on something that's a little bit more familiar to us, but with a big twist, high-speed trains. And so sure. can you talk to us a little bit about kind of what some of your company's proposals are right mm -hmm. now, particularly in the D.C. area, and what are some of the um, challenges and opportunities when it comes to working with local governments to make those happen? Sure. So... Yeah, like you said, we're, we're um, trying to introduce high-speed rail to the United States. Right now in the U.S., in fact, in the Western Hemisphere, the fastest train is the Amtrak Acela, which is um, capable of you know, fairly high speeds, I think 150 miles per hour, but in reality is averaging something like 85 miles per hour. Um, what that means if you live in D.C. or New York is you know, you're going to be in the train for about two hours and 40 minutes to get to downtown Manhattan. And you know, given the demographics in this area, we've got something like 15 to 20 percent of the population, 15 to 20 percent of the GDP of the United States, we need a better mobility solution. <clears throat> so my company, about 10 years ago, um, started talking with a lot of colleagues that we had at the Central Japan Railway Company, which is the world leader in high-speed rail, and trying to figure out, is there some application for their bullet trains in the United States? And is there some application for their next generation of train, which is superconducting maglev in the United States? And what we very quickly realized is that superconducting maglev is really the perfect solution for the Northeast Corridor. It travels at over 300 miles per hour, so from downtown D.C. to downtown New York City would be a one-hour trip. So we like to say Georgetown to Midtown in one hour. <laughs> um, and that would include two stops along the way. Um, so... 
Um, right now, we're, we're, we're pretty far along, actually, in this process. Uh, we're working through our environmental impact statement, to your, to your point about working with the regulators. And, um, you know, it's, it's moving along. It's a challenging thing to do an EIS, it's called environmental impact statement, on such a large project. Um, we're looking right now just at D.C. to Baltimore, so that's the first segment that we're going to build. Um, but even that, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very uh, substantial um, undertaking in terms of construction and, and expenditure. Um, but we're working through that. We're expecting that our uh, EIS is going to be published for the public sometime later this year, we hope. Um, and then after that, uh, we're going to transition into... Uh, doing the actual final engineering and beginning construction, hopefully in about two years. And so I think a lot of people in this room are familiar with what it feels like to be sitting in traffic between here and Baltimore. So, I mean, um, with your proposal, how quickly would you be able to travel to Baltimore from D.C.? So the concept right now is that there would be, uh, the line would go from D.C. to BWI to Baltimore, uh, stopping at BWI each time, and it would be about 15 minutes to get to BWI. So it's about, you know, right now, depending on whether you take Mark or whether you take Amtrak, it's going to be in the neighborhood of about 40, 45 minutes. So this is a substantial time savings, even just getting to Baltimore. Certainly would make booking flights out of there a lot <laughs> easier for, for right. many of us. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, uh, you could get to BWI Airport in under 10 minutes. Wow. Yep. And so on those, <clears throat> along those, these lines, I mean, I think a lot of us are familiar with using Lyft to hail a car or grab a taxi to where we're going, but um, it seems like the company is constantly moving into new areas of transportation. I mean, I know many of us walking around the streets today are probably seeing Lyft scooters on the roads, and I know you're doing a lot of work with bikes as well. So with that in mind, what, what are the next areas of transportation um, that Lyft is investing in as you're thinking about the future of cities? Yeah, so I think rideshare, obviously, being sort of our first mode of transportation that we rolled out, bikes and scooters uh, more recently, uh, and then autonomous vehicles is sort of the, the next evolution of that. But I think along the way, there's, there's steps that we need to consider. Um, and, and without getting into specific technologies, I think there are three sort of categories we could think we sort of we use as a framework to think about future mobility. And that is frictionless. How can we make our transportation systems more frictionless? So a lot of that is in providing more alternatives. Um, so it's rideshare, it's shared rides, it's bikes, it's scooters, uh, and something people don't think a, a lot about. Um, I think in this city and in New York City specifically, you should be thinking a lot about is integration with public transit. So how do we take existing infrastructure that exists that the public sector provides us and integrate our products into that system? And D.C. was one of the first cities where we rolled out an integration in-app with public transit. So you could actually build your uh, trip through bikes, through scooters, through rideshare, and then through public transportation. The other is equity, thinking about how can we increase the equity um, of transportation across our cities. We, we launched a, a food access pilot in Ward 7 and Ward 8 here in D.C., uh, which is described as a food desert um, where a lot of families don't have access to clean, healthy, sustainable food, uh, and providing them, partnering with a nonprofit, Martha's Table, providing low-income families with subsidized rides to, to grocery stores. Um, and there, there are other access programs that we're working on, things around maternity care deserts, where women who are pregnant who don't have access to proper health care. Um, and then the fourth is, is safety. Um, this is my number one priority when I think about the operations of Lyft, whether it be rideshare, shared rides, bikes, or scooters, is how do we ensure that uh, all modes of transportation, regardless of what they look like in the future, uh, increase in safety, and we're seeing fewer deaths, fewer incidences on the road. 
And so how do you weigh, right now it's obviously an extremely competitive environment with a lot of these newer forms of transportation like scooters. How do you weigh keeping up with the competition, rolling out as quickly as other companies like Uber and Bird, mm -hmm. while still weighing those safety concerns? Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, it's not about being fast anymore. It's about being better. Uh, it's about working with, you know, finding, finding a product that, that, uh, that um, the public wants to consume, the pub that works, um, and that regulators, that works with regulators. So I think that working collaboratively with regulators is a really uh, important part of, of what transportation in the future will look like, whether it's autonomous, whether it's rideshare, um, integration with public transportation. I think f speed was of the essence a few years ago when this industry first started off. And yes, it's always good to have your product on the street first. Um, but I think what we're focused on is making sure we're doing it right and we're doing it in collaboration with our public's, public partners. So in the transportation category, particularly, as you mentioned a couple of years ago, the emphasis was on getting it out there fast. And so there was kind of this um, ask for forgiveness later kind of mentality among a lot of these companies. I mean, um, how has that impacted you as you think about rolling out new uh, technologies and are looking at things like autonomous? Do, do regulators at the city level trust you? Yeah, I believe they do. I believe they do. But I think that that, that trust is, is earned. Um, and it's, it's about doing things the right way the first time um, and not asking for forgiveness afterwards and then you're rolling out a new product and say, okay, now well, can, we, can we do this the right way? So I think when you're, when you're, when you're, working, with when you're working collaboratively with uh, regulators to, to start with, it makes it easier to have conversations down the road about how to roll things out properly. But how do you weigh that against some of the pu public opposition that we've seen, especially with things like scooters where, you know, I was living in San Francisco when those were rolled out and suddenly in my North Beach neighborhood, people were just tripping over them on the sidewalks and there was, there was a lot of outrage with how the companies approach this. So how do you weigh that against some of these more public incidents where there's been a lot more opposition? Yeah, so I think with when Rideshare rolled out, there was a, a lot of, like the public wanted it. They found it, they, they used it and they wanted it and sort of regulators had to sort of bend to that will in a lot of lot of places um, I think now we're with scooters and bikes it's or scooters specifically it's a little different um, where to your point there is there is sort of a, a, a pub, public the public has a, a different opinion um, and I think it's it's it the onus is on private companies to find out exactly what customers really want um, are these products safe are they reliable? Um, and do the folks that don't use these products, are they a nuisance to them? And I think that listening, not just to regulators, but also the public is really important as we continue to roll out products like this. And so, Tim, I wanted to shift to you. I mean, as we're making this transition that you're talking about to you know, flying taxis rather than hailing an Uber, yeah. what are some lessons that city officials, state officials too, because I know you work with them a lot, can learn from what we've seen from the rollout of uh, other types of mobility technologies in recent years? Well, I think um, what we hear from the state governments, the federal government, even the cities, is what they're most concerned about is safety and security. And so that's why Fordham was founded, to ensure that <coughs> safety and security. I mean, that's top, number one. The FAA especially, they care about three things, safety, safety, and safety, right? And so um, we work with them very closely. And to, so to make sure that these things are safe, um, the plane manufacturers are all following the current regulations that the FAA has for airplanes, right? So number one, the aircraft are safe. <clears throat> number two, the state departments of transportation in the cities are putting in terrestrial GPS sites that are accurate to a centimeter, all right? 
and these planes are flying autonomously, even though they have a human pilot in them, because no one's going to get in one unless there's a human pilot, right? Maybe 10, 20 years from now, the next generation will get in them, just like we got in the monorail when there's nobody in it, right? The Disney World. But um, number two is uh, they'll be autonomous, so they're going to follow that very accurate GPS, those corridors. And the third thing to make sure it's safe is um, what things like what Fordham does. We build these small radar systems. Um, they're about the size of a, a large iPhone or a small laptop, and we put thousands of them throughout the city. And we digitize the airspace in the entire environment. And we see the drones, the birds, we can tell the difference. We create these geofences. And so if the drones are flying in the proper corridor, we'll monitor that and make sure that that's happening in, in an agreed-to <coughs> fashion, following the speed limit and these types of things. And then we'll also create these geofences, or we do create these geofences around stadiums, critical infrastructure venues, campuses, where um, drones are, are not to be, or the air taxis aren't supposed to be to keep those secure. And uh, those are monitored in real time as part of a smart city infrastructure to, to support um, you know, what's happening in our world. And so, Ian, you deal with a different mm -hmm. challenge when it comes to public officials yep. um, related to in infrastructure funding. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, because um, particularly with the Baltimore DC line that you were talking yep. about earlier, some of your critics say this product, this line might be too expensive. Um, it would cost between 10 billion and, and 12 billion. And people say that maybe that money should be put to work in, in other types of infrastructure projects. Um, I mean, what's your response to that criticism? Um, well, I mean, my first response is, yes, it is admittedly expensive. Um, however, you know, what you're paying for really is that speed. Um, getting from here to New York in an hour, I think, is fundamentally transformational for the region. Um, it changes how people think about where they're going to live, what jobs they take, how they spend their leisure time. And the reality is that you know, not doing it is really untenable. We lose, I think, by some estimates that I've seen, something like $6 billion per year just from sitting in our cars. It's just that loss of productivity. And what the maglev really brings to the equation is, you know, we're getting people out of, our, out of their cars. And for DC Baltimore, just to give you an example, our estimate is that within a few years of starting the line running, we're going to have something like 17 million passengers per year. And 80% of those passengers are getting out of their cars. So not only are we offering them a 15-minute travel time to Baltimore, but we're also taking all of that congestion off of BW Parkway, uh, I-95, um, you know, all the kind of other arteries uh, in the corridor. So, you know, yes, it's expensive, but we're paying a fortune every year now in lost productivity. And, you know, I think the cost of the maglev is really more than justified when you consider that. And so I also have a question from Twitter for you. And um, I'd just like to remind the audience that if you have any questions, you can tweet them to the panel at hashtag postlive. Um, and so this is from Michael on Twitter. Um, and he said, can you talk about how maglev is different from the boring company? For Ian. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, so what the boring, I, so I, 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 I have no relationship with the boring company, so I don't want to kind of speak on their behalf. But my understanding of what they're proposing is to dig a um, relatively small bore tunnel or two small bore tunnels 
uh, between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And those tunnels would essentially be uh, for autonomous Tesla vehicles um, that would just continuously run through. Um, so, you know, without making any kind of judgment on, on the utility of that or the feasibility of it, what I would say is how we're different is, A, you know, we're offering orders of magnitude faster transportation and also substantially greater capacity. So we're moving more people faster, um, more frequently. And so Elon Musk, though, has come out and said that the president supports him on, on this project. I mean, what does that mean from a competitive standpoint mm -hmm. for someone to have that level of visibility and, and sure. potentially support from I mean, President I, Trump? I, so I, I, I'm not maybe up to date on, on, on the latest uh, statements that he, he might have made, but, but I think I know what you're referring to, and I think he did kind of walk that back. He made a statement saying that the president or the White House supported Hyperloop. Um, Hyperloop is fundamentally different from the Boring Company, though. Hyperloop is, a, is, is very much a concept of running uh, high-speed trains in evacuated tunnels. Um, my understanding, again, I, I, I don't know how far along they are, but, but I believe it's still in a very conceptual stage. Um, you know, time will tell if it really is feasible. I know people have been talking about evacuated uh, tunnels for almost 100 years. Um, and there's a big issue of safety and an issue of figuring out the propulsion for a system like that. Uh, where we're different is that the superconducting maglev, it's operating in Japan at 300 miles per hour today. You could go there, get on the train, and ride it today. Um, we've had officials from the Federal Road Administration. We've had the former Secretary of Transportation, the Governor of Maryland. They've all ridden the maglev. They've seen it move at 300 miles per hour. It exists. So we're very different from Hyperloop in that respect. And so then, just from a standpoint of more traditional competitors, do you see this as something that would one day put Amtrak or regional uh, rail companies out of business? No. Uh, you know, on the contrary, I, th I think, in fact, there's, you know, when we look at the demand, there's the, the, the population of the Northeast Corridor is growing. I think there's ample demand to justify both of these systems, Amtrak uh, and SC Maglev and the commuter trains that are operating in the corridor. Um, and you know, Amtrak, I think, has a lot of issues right now in the Northeast Corridor, uh, competing with freight companies for space on the tracks. Um, you know, that makes operations quite difficult for them. So, um, you know, we're, we offer a, another form of transportation for people that want to get, say, from D.C. to New York faster, but there's plenty of people that want to get, um, say, to intermediate points and are less concerned with time. So I think there's a market for both of these systems. and. Um, you know, the, the demand, I think, certainly justifies having more than one form of transportation on the corridor. Got it. And we've only got a few minutes left, so I was thinking I might jump into some, into some rapid-fire questions. So maybe, Tim, first, you, you mentioned flying taxis earlier. How many years until I can hail a flying taxi? Uh, this summer, Amazon Lyft, uh, 20 cities, has uh, flying taxis, $129. You can get on one, strap on, type in an address, go high, they'll fly you there and back. It's more like an amusement ride to get society used to it. But there's uh, 20 some companies that have announced, um, I think, product from a lot of the major companies, you know, ships in a few years. Um, um, uh, there's a lot of people building sky ports on top of buildings to be able to fly. These are very, um, you know, low cost, um, um, highly efficient, very quiet. 
air taxis. So um, the infrastructure in these cities and the state <coughs> DOTs are building that infrastructure now to make it safe and secure. Ian, how many years until I can get from D.C. to New York in an hour? Uh, our, our hope is, oh, D.C. to New York? Well, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't make that prediction, but taking things, you know, one bite at a time, D.C. to Baltimore, we're hoping by around sometime between 2027, 2030, you'll be able to buy your ticket. And I know for Lyft long term, the vision is autonomous vehicles, but mm -hmm. looking a little bit shorter term, next five years, what's going to be the most transformative uh, transportation technology? I mean, I think you're going to see autonomous vehicles continue to roll out in cities like Las Vegas. We've done 50,000 rides to date where you could order, uh, you, could, you could request an autonomous vehicle in app in Las Vegas. We've done 50,000 rides to date in that market. I think you're going to see more autonomous rides, but not maybe the way that a lot of people are thinking. Level five, all weather, uh, day and night, you're seeking like uh, a fixed route, predictable route uh, in, in dense cities. You're going to see that in the next five years. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.